Medicine and healthcare have always been defined by more than just science. They are also shaped by culture, economics, politics and society. In short, they reflect us, who we are, what we value and what we don't. My name is Kieran Fitzpatrick and this is Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide. Hi there, and welcome to the seventh episode of this first season of Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide, with me, Kieran Fitzpatrick. Over the past few episodes, this season has quite spontaneously evolved into a series of conversations that explore infectious disease as part of a broader set of material conditions concerning man's relationship with nature. I'm going to level with you and say that when this series started, I, well, I didn't know what I was doing, but also I didn't quite know what I wanted it to be beyond being about infectious disease and providing context to COVID-19. But over the last couple of episodes from cities across the world ravaged by the third plague pandemic that we came to know in episode four, to the trenches of the First World War in episode five, and the antibiotic-soaked cattle and pig pens through which we walked in episode 6, it's become increasingly clear that our experiences of infectious disease, that central theme that we started with, are intertwined with how we define and exploit natural resources, particularly animals, and what that says about social and political priorities at given points in time. This is a really happy accident and it's something it's a topic that I find fascinating and the only reason it has come to be as central and as fascinating a theme is because of the thought-provoking contributions of my guests for which I'm extremely grateful. This seventh episode takes this theme and continues running with it directly into the topic of international development during and after the Second World War. My guest is Dr Sabine Clark of the University of York whose research on international development during this period focuses on the use of insecticides and other chemicals on the part of Britain, the United States and new types of global organisation, such as the World Health Organisation and the United Nations, of which it was a part, to manage and create a so-called healthier world, free of humanity's most pressing and destructive historical problems namely hunger and disease. However, through a range of chemicals, and one most infamously, DDT, these visions rubbed up against a whole host of difficult and complex issues around not only the risks associated with these sorts of interventions, and which of those risks were deemed to matter more than others, but also who defined what development counted as in what we now think of as the global south. Wide experts, or local people of colour. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode two of this season of Body Politics yet, in which we delved into the history of smallpox by way of first the WHO's eradication campaign of that disease in the 1960s and 70s, but then a much longer history of smallpox by way of colonisation in Australia, then that's definitely worth a listen once you've finished here. 
Check it and all other episodes from this first season out on www.bodypoliticspodcast.com and make sure to subscribe at the bottom of the page for alerts about all new content. This is the story of a miraculous white powder that is helping to win the war. Its name is dichlorodiphenyltrichlorethane, for short, DDT. It may one day prove our greatest weapon towards victory over an enemy more murderous even than the fascist, against disease. Yes, today, DDT is necessarily a military weapon. We're turning it out by the thousands of tons, but every ounce is needed for the war effort. When the fascist is finally beaten, though, DDT will be available to all, and the homecoming of the healthiest army in military history will be in no small part due to DDT, our great new weapon for war today and peace tomorrow. That was footage from an official US Army recording made in 1947 in which DDT appeared as the chemical knight in shining armour, ready to provide a sucker punch to disease in much the same way as the American military was envisaged as having provided the same to fascism a few years before. The sort of rhetoric that the footage indulged in, strident, self-confident and brash, has since come to form part of a stock social and economic history of DDT in which the unquestioning faith in the science of the chemical to eradicate disease-carrying insects was later undermined and eventually destroyed by a single book called Silent Spring, published by an American writer named Rachel Carson in 1962. In it, Carson sought to emphasise how the industrial production and widespread use of DDT in America was having disastrous ecological consequences. And the book's opening has since become famous for its vivid portrayal of the negative effects of pesticides like DDT on the American landscape. There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms with fields of grain and hillsides of orchards where, in spring, White clouds of bloom drifted across the green fields. In autumn, oak and maple and birch set up a blaze of color that flamed and flickered across a backdrop of pines. Then, foxes barked in the hills and deer silently crossed the fields, half hidden in the mists of the fall mornings. Then a strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens. The cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was a shadow of death. The farmers spoke of much illness among their families. In the town, the doctors had become more and more puzzled by new kinds of sickness appearing among their patients. There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among adults, but even among children who would be stricken suddenly while at play and die within a few hours. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, 
Where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and wood and marsh. According to Carson, the seasons had been made silent because of the widespread use of DDT and other industrial chemicals in agriculture and as part of public health campaigns. The book was met with widespread public interest and severe criticism from both the producers of pesticides and from within the scientific research community itself, but has been widely hailed since as the catalyst for the modern environmental movement. But this established history makes the story of DDT seem uniquely American, when in fact it was part of a much broader global history of international development, the decline of European imperialism, and the extension of power into the world by global institutions such as the UN and WHO. The medical officer explains that buildings treated with DDT remain effective against mosquitoes for about three months. He now eats several spoonfuls of the mixture to show that the contaminated food is harmless. He now eats several spoonfuls. Even this fails to convince. Also the recorded in 1947, harmless. that footage was filmed somewhere in one of Britain's then Even African this colonies. To the and to watch the video that came with the audio is actually quite funny. Although the narrator paternalistically assumes that the African tribes people are afraid or superstitious of the use of DDT, they come across as far more bemused by the sight of a white colonial official spraying a bowl of porridge oats with an industrial-sized spritz bottle and then proceeding to eat what he's just doused the porridge in whilst gesticulating wildly in a clumsy attempt to make it clear that DDT is safe enough to eat, which is also the title of the video. So of the two, my sympathies definitely lie more with the Africans than with the Brits. But aside from its unintended comedy, the recording raises questions about what was going on in these years surrounding global health and the methods used in pursuit of it. What were British scientists trying to achieve in using chemicals like DDT in Britain's colonies? In what ways were their aims different or similar to those of powerful liberal nations like the United States and the institutions such as the WHO that they helped underwrite? Sabine Clark, our guest in this episode, is well placed to help us answer these sorts of questions, having written numerous articles and a book titled Science at the End of Empire on the broad topic. So let's have a listen. I really hope you enjoy how this conversation unfolds. One of the things I found interesting, actually, reading the acknowledgements in 
um, science at the end of Empire was that you mentioned about uh, uh, the career you had prior to getting into history. And I wondered what that was. I'm always fascinated <laughs> by the way that people enter into sort of being historians. Yeah, I mean, um, so my, like a lot, quite a few historians of science, my first degree was in um, biology. Okay. Um, and there's the story behind that. It, it, I, I don't think science was ever, if you like, really my sort of thing. Yeah. But I, I, like a lot of people, um, I was the first person in my family to go to university. And, I, and then there was a certain, um, well, very supportive. There was a certain expectation that if you go to university, you're going to go to, to get a better job. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was very much um, encouraged to do a science subject. This is in the 80s when there was, towards the end of the 80s, where unemployment is obviously a major issue. So I did a science degree, slightly unwillingly, maybe, <laughs> yeah. um, and then was stuck because it wasn't clear that I would ever have a career um, as a scientist. Um, and so I then became a science teacher and I was a science teacher in a school in Birmingham for about six years. Um, and that, that was sort of quite enjoyable. I, I actually you know, got a lot from doing that. And it was in a very challenging school as well. So I sort of really you know, was thrown in the deep end at the age of like 20, 23 <laughs> Right. But as I was teaching science, a lot of questions were coming up for me about the nature of science. So something like teaching science, of course, to make you really confront some of the things we say about science. So the idea that children learn science by experimentation and they will discover the world. And increasingly it became clear to me that that's not how it works. Right? You, you tell the children the world is made of tiny, tiny things that they cannot see and they cannot discover those things. They have to believe you. They're, they are they're expected <coughs> to engage in acts of faith yes exactly so there's a sort of delusion we're all going to we're all going to sort of participate in this delusion right so anyway um, i started reading philosophy of science and then i thought oh you know i'm going to take a year out i'm going to do a master's in the philosophy of science and this will really help me sort of like and also i, was, I think i was slightly burnt out by this point because my job was very demanding very demanding school so i said to my head I'll, I'll just take a year and i'll be back and of course i never went I never went back. Mm-hmm. That master's in history and philosophy of science became a PhD. I think that's a story that uh, is it, it kind of rolls out with with obvious kind of biographical variations quite a lot from what I've heard. Especially, it seems to be maybe it's just because I know British academia and Irish academia best, but it seems to be an aspect of British academia that people kind of um, train or qualify as one thing maybe early early in life and then go I probably should I, I probably should be doing something else and yeah. Yeah. end up going off and doing it so I wondered whether or not to start you could give us a sense of what substances like pesticides and insecticides meant for both the colonial powers but then also the international powers like America and um, global organizations like the WHO, what, in summary, is that all about? It's, it's. I think it's a very big question. Right, there's, a, Massive, there's an, awful, yeah. lot, <laughs> an yeah. awful lot to consider. I mean, I, I suppose at the moment, perhaps we ought to start with what we know and, and what historians have, have really sort of mapped out for us. And the one thing um, that you can say, I think, about our existing understandings of chemicals such as DDT and global health is the, the, the work that was done by the World Health Organization, um, particularly the um, Global Malaria Eradication Plan that was launched in 1955, uh, where the WHO, the World Health Organization, um, set, set about using um, 
very widespread spraying campaigns using DDT to try and eradicate malaria. It was one of those new insecticide in the post-war period. It was used during the war. Famously, it was used in 1943 to control an outbreak of typhus in Naples. This is after the Allies had liberated Italy. And what you see happening after that episode, um, when it was used in Naples, is it, it it, it, it becomes part of sort of wartime propaganda, particularly coming from America. So it has, it's covered in Time magazine and there's a, some series of photographs, it's a very famous series of photographs in Time magazine of um, soldiers spraying civilians with DDT. And what it was doing was killing the body lice that obviously transmit typhus. But it has this very, um, it has this incredibly, um, I think, well-crafted image by the end of the war. And it's celebrated at the end of the war as one of the key technologies that helped the Allies win the war, alongside penicillin and, of course, the atomic bomb. But I think what's the point I'm making here is that there's an awful lot of propaganda around DDT by the end of the war. So when the World Health Organization sort of declare that they're going to use DDT um, to eradicate malaria. So this great scourge of the tropical world and save millions of lives. Part of the um, power of that argument from the World Health Organization comes from the fact that DDT, DDT at this point in history has already had this humanitarian reputation because of course it was used to actually um, stop a major epidemic of typhus during the war and you know, save the lives of many, many people in Italy and protected um, British and American troops. So it's interesting, I think, now DDT, of course, has been banned and, and we know it to be actually a very, very dangerous chemical. So we have to sort of go back in time and, and re-inhabit this world in which it had this amazing reputation as a sort of incredibly powerful weapon that would save lives that's that's what its reputation is like well in many ways right we have to think of it now we have to think of it historically as if we don't know what rachel carson <laughs> wrote about it yeah no absolutely i think it's it's really interesting um because when you see the photographs now um, for example um the photographs that were taken um in the liberation of bergen belsen one of the concentration camps um, and when the Allies um, turned up there, there was a terrible outbreak of typhus and, and many people were on the verge of death. So there are photographs of, of the prisoners in the camp being um, sprayed with uh, DDT dust. And you can see the dust in their hair because, of course, it slightly grayed their hair. And, and these um, very large sort of syringe type hand sprayers are, are being used to puff DDT up their sleeves right, to, to kill the body lice. And it, it, what's amazing, because when we see these images now of that um, incredible, intimate contact with this chemical, we, we recoil in horror. We think that, that just, but of course, that's not at all what those images meant when they were first circulated in 1945, right? They would have been, they were images um, celebrating a triumphant moment in which people's lives were being saved. That's, and it's really, as you're, as you're saying, it's really hard, isn't it, to sort of reconnect to those meanings. I think yeah. because we know, when we see any image of DDT being sprayed and even not with people across landscapes right, on a massive scale, we think, oh, God, look at that. Um, look at the damage or the risk. Just in terms of very sort of, I guess, the, the brass tacks of um, what DDT was used for. Well, what was DDT used for? Was it, it, I take it it was largely agricultural, but was it? Well, um, yes, DDT um, was mainly used. Um, well, no, it wasn't actually. It was. It's had a wide range of uses. It was used in um, fly spray. 
so there's a huge market for it in people's houses and homes. Um, so it's part of a product named Flit, for example. And um, so one of the very first insects to develop res resistance to DDT was the housefly, which speaks of quite a high level of use, yeah. I would say. Um, it's used in agriculture to control a range of pests. But interestingly, during the 40s, when it's being tested, it becomes clear that it's not a panacea. There are quite a lot of insects that are not really affected by DDT. But of course, it's not the only chemical which is in use after the end of the war. Um, in Britain, its rival is an ICI chemical called BH. Um, so there's also so there's a whole range of chemicals is what I'm saying so scientists are trying to figure out which chemical works for which insect and then and then DDT is very effective against mosquitoes and that's one of the big sort of areas of use um, sure. yeah yeah and then so how does it get out into the world so you 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 deal largely uh, with the British imperial context in yeah. the, the 40s and 50s and like you mentioned before, the WHO starts using it in the late 50s in its malaria eradication program. So what's the, what's the chronolog chronology of, uh, of DDT in, in those decades? Yeah, I'll, I'll ask the next question <laughs> down the road. I have too many questions. Uh, what's the chronology? So um, the, the, the WHO story um, starts in, in 1955 when this campaign is created to spray um, DDT. Um, and the focus of that is mainly on islands. So it makes a lot of sense. If you can remove mos mosquitoes that spread malaria on an island, that's probably not a bad tactic because reinfestation perhaps won't occur, right? Um, perhaps what we know far less about, which is also going on after the war, is the Rockefeller also have a number of DDT spraying campaigns. And so the Rockefeller are responsible for quite a lot of the work that is done in eradicating malaria in the Caribbean. And the thing we know least about that I'm working on at the moment is the fact that the British Colonial Office also is experimenting with DDT to see if it can be used to control malaria. So there's, there's a far more complicated situation than, than just the World Health Organization story, which I think is the sort of one which is most famous. Um, and Britain carries out extensive experiments in East Africa, so Kenya, Uganda, and what was then called um, Tanganyika in the 40s and 50s, trialing um, DDT, BHC, and other chemicals against malaria-carrying mosquitoes, but also the tsetse fly that causes sleeping sickness. Right. Uh, Tanzania is now Malawi, right? No, Tanzania. Oh, is it now Tanzania? Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how does the colonial approach differ at all mm. to the quote-unquote international approach? It's, oh, it's such a fantastic question. Um, one thing that um, is striking about the stories of the World Health Organization that have really sort of dominated this post-war history tropical use is this the story is one of, of people's enthusiasm for the technological quick fix that DDT represents right so before the war there's a lot of research into malaria and people understand the very complicated context in which malaria operates so it's a disease which is exacerbated by poor nutrition for example and all of those really deep and sophisticated contextualized understandings of disease are swept aside because all you now have to do is spray basically 
So the technological quick fix is perhaps the most famous example of how, um, if you like, an extraordinarily simplistic one-size-fits-all solution is imposed upon the problem of malaria. Yeah, and it seems like a particularly colonial thing to do, that you, you, <laughs> you assume that in spraying a continent with a chemical you are civilizing the world that that seems like a bit because it, it's a counterpoint to mm. the work that you do on venereal disease and i think it brings out this in in the caribbean where you tell this story of how america and britain are competing for control of mm. venereal um uh, of venereal disease eradication after the war and the striking thing in that story which complements the, the spraying of insecticides is that the Americans seem to be far better at being subtle in how they um, arrange their research mm. for, for public viewing. Mm. And the British don't quite get it. The British are going, well, why do we need all of these documents and bureaucracy and the fanfare? Why can't we just leave it up to somebody else to fi figure this out? It's quite an interesting distinction between the two the two forms of power and I, I think it is it is something that i think <clears throat> we're exploring that difference in um it, i mean because i think very crude understanding of development after 1945 would uh, seem to suggest that whoever is doing the developing the approach is largely similar right but uh, the role that science and technology and the role that expertise are playing for britain and america after 1945 it's not exactly the same I don't think. And I think you're right that Britain is unbelievably complacent. It yeah. assumes its superiority when it comes to science and medicine in its colonies. It's been doing this for so long that it doesn't need to celebrate itself and its achievements. No. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. It, it, it's those kind of, I, I always got the sense that by the, by the 30s, 40s and 50s, a lot of the British administrations are looking back to the likes of Ronald Ross and um, numerous other sort of late Victorian gentleman scientist types and going, well, we gave the world them. So therefore you should be happy just to take for granted what we say. Yeah. It's that, it's <laughs> yeah, that sort I, of dynamic. Yeah, yeah. So I want to come back to what you said about the, the spraying, because mm. I find that fascinating and I want to ask whether you think that approach to development, which is completely oversimplified and, and does away with a lot of the complexity, is largely economic in nature, or mm. whether there's a specific ideological, and I guess we've touched on it slightly in the last few minutes, but whether there's a specific ideological uh, mm. motivation to pursuing that form of development work. Yeah, I mean... Again, I think within discussions that you can see happening, uh, say, at the colonial office in London, um, between <coughs> uh, officials, some of which are scientists and some of whom are, are not, you can see different interpretations of what Britain's sort of purpose is after the Second World War. So there are those people who are very keen that Britain should fulfil its responsibilities as a trustee, this idea of trusteeship, the colonies are, are the responsibility of Britain, but Britain must ensure that the things they do 
are for the benefit of colonised people. That's what people say. I'm not saying that that's actually what happens, but that's that's part of the rhetoric, part of the perhaps even of the ideology of empire. The problem is that vision, which might seem quite perhaps progressive, is sometimes put to one side in favour of more short-term sort of goal ends, which is basically making sure the colonies benefit Britain. So there's there's more than one way of sort of justifying the possession of an empire after 1945, um, which is very convenient, I would say, (laughs) from the official perspective, because it means that if they have to um, justify why Britain needs an empire to the treasury, they can sort of talk about how the production of um, products in the tropical empire are the benefit of Britain. Yes. No, empire's expensive in the post-war period, more expensive than it has ever been previously. And the benefit of having an empire are not quite as apparent as they used to be. Yeah, yeah. And so there's yeah. a sense of um, it's it's a different type of scrambling for Africa. It's sort yeah. of scrambling for an argument as to why they should be there rather than actually being there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I do come back to that question that we, we kind of went to a bit earlier. We, we might explore a bit more about to what extent is there a difference between colonial governance, colonial global governance, and international global governance, especially around this 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 question of insecticides and global health mm-hmm. um, in this period, because the cynic in me sometimes thinks they're all the bloody same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I it's really because it, I think the part, the part of the complexity of it, of course, is the fact that the rhetoric is definitely different. So, um, and what's interesting, of course, and fascinating is if, if British Empire, the British Empire was always intended at the end of the day to bring benefit to Britain. And whatever the discussions might be about trusteeship or the rest of it, the whole point was the, the sort of the agriculture, for example, in the context of any colony, first and foremost was orientated towards a cash crop economy, which would ultimately bring benefit to Britain. Um, mm. And and so, however much I think sometimes Britain tried to present its scientific and medical interventions as being of benefit to colonial people, I think there was always an admission that this was somehow compensatory, if you like, and particularly medicine. Um, so there is this, you know, unfortunately, um, things are bad for you and it's possibly our fault. So here's a hospital sort of idea, I think. Okay. Um, I I think one of the things I've noticed about the post-war period is I think that visions of development um, that are produced by Britain are far less good on the political aspects of what that sort of pro that that road to independence might look like. Um, Far better usually on the economic Mm. sort of questions here. So they're far more concerned with the economic issues and far. a far, far worse, really, at actually seriously considering what would be the right path to independence for the political parties or individuals that are now very clearly active in Britain's colonies. So there is, you know, there's some gross mishandling, of course, of, of that process. Kenya would be a good example. Yeah, I was about to say the Mouse. Yeah. Whereas I think the American version is a bit more, um, at least on paper, has prioritised what 
the road to independence might be in political terms a lot more or is more concerned with the political nature of sort of independence if you yeah. like, has a vision of what independence means and um, what being a, f- a sort of free and autonomous nation what a sovereign state means in a way that perhaps British colonial office has not what Britain expects of course is everyone then becomes part of a commonwealth Then, of course, when you start to drill down into the version of the United Nations and the US, it turns out that actually their idea of sort of a federation maybe of nations under the United Nations system isn't actually perhaps... That different. That different, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's very difficult, isn't it? Particularly since one, one, one country, the US, has, you know, of course, is defining its vision of development and sort of the, the sort of... Um, global political systems in relation to empires of course so one one cannot um one rhetoric cannot flourish without the the other the existence of the other in a way yeah so it's really yeah. complicated yes it is it is it's mad. i remember i remember there was a guy um and i'm getting massively off, off topic here but we'll get back on shortly um there was a guy at king's in london called i think his name was tim livesey yes do you know Tim? Yeah, he writes about universities. Yes, yeah. and I was I was in a seminar with Tim about six years ago, and I remember him saying something to the effect of the fact that he'd been looking at the staff lists for um, for colonial institutions just before independence in a number of different African countries, and the staff lists of people who were there in NGOs and mm-hmm. Um, United Nations contexts and the, the the like I say the quote unquote new international order, and he said it was remarkable to see how many of the names just carried over from from one to the other. That there was this completely permeable membrane from the colonial institutions into the into the international international institutions. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it it is absolutely remarkable. I remember um, when I was doing my PhD, I interviewed um, people who'd worked in Africa in the forties and fifties, and, and a, a significant proportion of them ended up working for the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. Right. right. And at the moment, I'm looking at locus control, and um, the FAO's locus control um, section is almost entirely populated by British officers by the end of the fifties. I mean, that reflects, of course, I suppose the one thing which is is then actually true, that Britain had, in fact, been funding science and technology on quite a significant scale by the end of the empire. So there are a lot of these people around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, like, I don't think it's a... (laughs) I don't think it's a mass global conspiracy. Um, (laughs) But but it is interesting that the... That the interests and ideologies mm. have both allowed people to to hop between one and the other um one of the things that i did wonder about your work is is how the story shapes local people mm. in who are on the receiving end of this insecticide use and i know you're you you've been stymied in in your effort in your efforts to get into archives because of covid um so so you might not be able to answer as you would like but i am interested in in what the effects were locally on not just ecologically but also culturally yeah um on local african communities 
I mean, the, the work that I have done, or the area of insecticide use, which I have done a lot of work on, is in the field of locust control. Mm-hmm. Um, where the new insecticides, um, not so much DDT, but its competitor, BHC, was extensively used to control locust outbreaks in the 40s and 50s, sometimes quite successfully. Um, and it's quite possible, though I will cautious in saying that, that the British government committed more funds to controlling locusts through insecticides than it did controlling malaria. So this could be, it could be the major area of um, insect control using the new insecticides because there was a lot of locust plagues in the 40s, 50s, basically. But, but what's interesting there is, um, and it's, there's a lot to be said, a lot to say about this, so I'll try and summarise. But the use of insecticides was, was in the case of um, people, the population of Kenya, sometimes extremely controversial. And again, the reason for that is because during, um, before the war, before the new insecticides were developed, Locusts have been largely controlled using, yet again, arsenic. And the problem about um, using arsenic to control locusts is what you do is you, you make balls of it called bait. Arsenic is, ru- is rolled up with something tasty that the locusts will eat, maybe um, a mixture of molasses and some sort of chaff from wheat or bran or something like that. And you make balls and you, you put them on the ground and the young locusts eat these baits. And then right. they die, right? They die of arsenic poisoning. The problem with that is that um, if your goats come along and eat mm. the bait, they will die too. So what 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 Britain has is this is real sort of conundrum, this real problem to work out with local people in Kenya and Somaliland and other places. That um, how to introduce new insecticides and convince people that they were safe insecticides. So as we said earlier, the, the scientists have decided that um, DDT-like chemicals were safe. The problem is that um, sort of Kenyan herdsmen were less persuaded. And I think what's really interesting about that is that the, the sort of attitudes of some Kenyan and Somalian herdsmen was based on experience, right? So it was actually informed. It was rational. Yeah. The resistance is not born out sort of as is colonial scientists like to claim, you know, because it was superstition, because they were primitive. Not at all. No, it was a very... Um experientially derived yeah. form of folk medicine really i suppose yeah. yeah yeah exactly exactly but there are lots of questions about because they, they they try on the new insecticides after the war they try aerial spraying for example so there's something really complicated to be worked out here about what the sort of um, impact of these insecticides were on the environment in kenya for example or the or kenyan people and I think there are the sort of ways of breaking that down i think you have to ask questions about who was doing the um, spraying because it seems while Kenyan farmers would not have been purchasing the new insecticides themselves, a lot of them worked as labourers on other people's farms. So it could be, of course, that some people were exposed to a lot of insecticide because they were spraying coffee trees, basically. Mm-hmm. So the, the question becomes sometimes it's about that intersection between race and, of course, um, labour class, if you like. So the people who were most exposed to insecticides um, in farms were not, of course, the farm owner but the farm labourer who has the most intimate exposure to the new chemicals. So these are the sorts of things that we need to start considering. Yeah, yeah. And the, <clears throat> the, I guess the distinction between those <clears throat> on the side of the colonial government and mm. the, the people who were making the decisions, the macro decisions. Yes. Um, 
also goes with a degree of safety and distance from the consequences of the use, whereas the people who had no agency over what was being used to promote health or promote global health were actually the ones most in danger of its worst effects. Yes, yeah. Although then, of course, we also have to consider um, that if... um, when Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, she was writing about the consequences of massive applications of DDT in America on farms and also forests and communities. Mm. Um, and so the environmental impacts that she describes in that book probably were not happening in Africa because, you know, there's, there isn't that huge and um, relatively wealthy farming sector you know, right. those consumers of pesticides do not exist in Africa. Even in subsistence Afri- based, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So, I mean, the, the main areas of insecticide use in farming that I can identify at the moment are the large development projects like the Gazira scheme in Sudan, um, which, of course, is, you know, partly sort of government. So large, if you like, very commercially orientated development schemes probably consumed insecticides Mm. but individual as you say subsistence farmers and they wouldn't have been buying pesticides in this period anyway yeah yeah it would have been far far smaller scale exactly so i think we need to be prepared for the fact that the environmental impact of insecticides during the colonial period may not actually have been as big as we sometimes assume yeah yeah that's that that's an interesting thought yeah but uh, i'm not saying it doesn't happen but it happens a bit later on yeah yeah, yeah, the periodization yeah. matters. Um, I'm going to let you go very shortly, but I wondered if you had any thoughts, given your interests in development and sort of global health in, in the global south um, in the mid-20th century, ab- about the sorts of stories we've heard about inequalities in vaccine rollout between the global north and the global south, and how you think this history that you tell can explain mm. that, that phenomenon even if the, the scientific context is quite different? Yeah, I mean, it's just a, just, just a small question, right? <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a small question. We'll leave, people, we'll leave people looking for more at the end. You know, my, my immediate thought um, on your question is in, how interesting it is to me that the stories um, that we, are, we have about our fight against COVID are so organised around a technological breakthrough, right? Very, very true, yes. Yes. Whereas actually what we know, of course, um, from looking at the past is how um, successful medical interventions are a sort of social, socio-technological system that needs to be in place, if you like. And so great, great rollout of vaccines requires great health infrastructure, doesn't it? it and it requires faith in sort of civic authorities and sort of medical expertise. Um, it's not just about great technological breakthroughs those things do not drive a health sort of revolution, do they, unfortunately, on their own. What surfaced for me whilst reflecting on mine and Sabine's conversation, as well as the supporting material I came across while putting this episode together, was how the institutions responsible for spraying DDT and other chemicals in many locations around the world in the 1940s and 50s were so dangerously self-assured of the rightness of their actions, to the point where those same representatives would consume food 
sprayed with what would later emerge as a chemical toxic to the human body in order to theatrically demonstrate the perceived power of their science and its promise for a perceived common and humane good. Whilst I find much of the prevailing dismissive attitudes towards experts and expertise currently at play in Western society to be worrying and misguided, there are aspects of the history of DDT that do at least make them more understandable and show us how we might act with more compassion and empathy in our expertise in the future. My sincere thanks to Dr Sabine Clark for her time, knowledge and good company in the recording of our conversation. Thanks too to Sarah McGill for stepping in at short notice to channel the words of Rachel Carson that she wrote in Silent Spring, and of course, as ever, to the anonymous archivists who preserve audiovisual material that can then be used in the production of podcasts and other media. The next episode of Body Politics will be the last in this current series, and I'm very much looking forward to a well-earned break away from the microphone. It will probably be the most reflective of the series so far, in an attempt to consolidate the ground we've covered over the past two or three months. In conversation with Dr Jacob Moses of Johns Hopkins University, we'll be using the episode to reflect on some big questions in the history and philosophy of science, like the meaning of scientific progress and how science copes when those meanings are challenged and ultimately refuted. I think these sorts of issues have been present throughout the series so far, and I'm really looking forward to rounding the series off by foregrounding them. I sincerely hope you can join me for that conversation, and as always, I'd encourage you to become a subscriber to the show at www.bodypoliticspodcast.com so that you know whenever its latest content is published and also to follow it on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your weekly podcast content. Until next time, keep well, stay safe, and goodbye.